0: You are listening to the Philosophy Podcast presented by LearnOutloud.com. Here we will periodically showcase audio renditions of great works from philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Kant, Nietzsche, and beyond. For a complete listing of the Learn Out Loud podcasts with links to subscribe, please visit our website at www.learnoutloud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. Selections from the Philosophical Dictionary by Voltaire, translated by H. I. Wolfe, published in 1764. Authority. Wretched human beings! Whether you wear green robes, turbans, black robes, or surplices, cloaks, and neckbands, never seek to use authority where there is question only of reason. Or consent to be scoffed at throughout the centuries as the most impertinent of all men, and to suffer public hatred as the most unjust, a hundred times has one spoken to you of the insolent absurdity with which you condemned Galileo, and I speak to you for the hundred and first, and I hope you will keep the anniversary of it for ever. I desire that there be engraved on the door of your holy office here seven cardinals assisted by minor brethren had the master of thought in Italy thrown into prison at the age of seventy, made him fast on bread and water because he instructed the human race, and because they were ignorant. There was pronounced a sentence in favor of Aristotle's categories, and there was decreed learnedly and equitably the penalty of the galleys for whoever should be sufficiently daring as to have an opinion different from that of the staggerite, whose books were formerly burned by two councils. Further on a faculty which had not great faculties, issued a decree against innate ideas, and later a decree for innate ideas, without the said faculty being informed by its beetles what an idea is. In the neighboring schools judicial proceedings were instituted against the circulation of the blood, an action was started against inoculation, and the parties have been subpoenaed. At the Customs of Thought, twenty one folio volumes were seized, in which it was stated treacherously and wickedly that triangles always have three angles, that a father is older than his son, that Rhea Silvia lost her virginity before giving birth to her child, and that flower is not an oak leaf. In another year was judged the action, utrim chimera bombenans, invacue possit comidaire sacundas intentionis, and was decided in the affirmative. In consequence, everyone thought themselves far superior to Archimedes, Euclid, Cicero, Pliny, and strutted proudly about the university quarter. Is it not probable that the Brahmins were the first legislators of the earth, the first philosophers, the first theologians? Do not the few monuments of ancient history which remain to us form a great presumption in their favor, since the first Greek philosophers went to them to learn mathematics, and since the most ancient curiosities collected by the emperors of China are all Indian. We will speak elsewhere of the Shasta. It is the first book of theology of the Brahmins, written about fifteen hundred years before their Vidam, and anterior to all the other books. Their annals make no mention of any war undertaken by them at any time. The words for arms, to kill, to maim, are not to be found either in the fragments of the Shasta, which we have, or in the Korma Vidam. I can at least give the assurance that I did not see them in these last two collections and what is still more singular is that the Shasta, which speaks of a conspiracy in heaven, makes no mention of any war in the great peninsula enclosed between the Indus and the Ganges. The Hebrews, who were known so late, never named the Brahmins. They had no knowledge of India until after the conquests of Alexander and their settling in Egypt, of which they had said so much evil. The name of India is to be found only in the book of Esther, and in that of Job, which was not Hebrew. One remarks a singular contrast between the sacred books of the Hebrews and those of the Indians. The Indian books announce only peace and gentleness. They forbid the killing of animals. The Hebrew books speak only of killing, of the massacre of men and beasts. Everything is slaughtered in the name of the Lord. It is quite another order of things. It is incontestably from the Brahmins that we hold the idea of the fall of the celestial beings in revolt against the sovereign of nature. And it is from there, probably, that the Greeks drew the fable of the Titans. It is there also that the Jews at last took the idea of the revolt of Lucifer in the first century of our era. How could these Indians suppose a revolt in heaven without having seen one on earth? Such a jump from human nature to divine nature is barely conceivable. Usually one goes from known to unknown. One does not imagine a war of giants until one has seen some men more robust than the others, tyrannize over their fellows. The first Brahmins must either have experienced violent discords, or at least have seen them in heaven. It is a very astonishing phenomenon for a society of men who have never made war to have invented a species of war made in the imaginary spaces, or in a globe distant from ours, or in what is called the firmament, the Empyrean. But it must be carefully observed that in this revolt of celestial beings against their sovereign, no blows were struck. No celestial blood flowed, no mountains hurled at the head, no angels cut in two, as in Milton's sublime and grotesque poem. According to the Shasta, it is only a formal disobedience to the orders of the Most High, a Kabul which God punishes by relegating the rebellious angels to a vast place of shadows called Ondera, during the period of an entire mononthor. A mononthor is four hundred and twenty-six millions of our years, But God deigned to pardon the guilty after five thousand years, and their Ondera was only a purgatory. He made murder of them, men, and placed them in our globe on condition that they should not eat animals and that they should not copulate with the males of their new species under pain of returning to Ondera. Those are the principal articles of the Brahmin's faith, which have lasted without interruption from immemorial times right to our day, It seems strange to us that among them it should be as grave a sin to eat a chicken as to commit sodomy. This is only a small part of the ancient cosmogony of the Brahmins. Their rites, their pagodas, prove that among them everything was allegorical. They still represent virtue beneath the emblem of a woman who has ten arms and who combats ten mortal sins represented by monsters. Our missionaries have not failed to take this image of virtue for that of the devil, and to assure us that the devil is worshipped in India. We have never been among these people but to enrich ourselves and calumniate them. Really, we have forgotten a very essential thing in this little article on the Brahmins. It is that their sacred books are filled with contradictions. But the people do not know of them, and the doctors have solutions ready, figurative meanings, allegories, symbols, express declarations of Burma, Brahma, and Vitsnu, which should close the mouths of all who reason democracy ordinarily there is no comparison between the crimes of the great who are always ambitious and the crimes of the people who always want and can want only liberty and equality. These two sentiments liberty and equality do not lead direct to calumny, rapine, assassination, poisoning, the devastation of one's neighbours lands etc but ambitious might and the mania for power plunge into all these crimes whatever be the time whatever the place. Popular government is in itself, therefore, less iniquitous, less abominable than despotic power. The great vice of democracy is certainly not tyranny and cruelty. There have been mountain-dwelling Republicans, savage, ferocious, but it is not the Republican spirit that made them so. It is nature. The real vice of a civilized republic is in the Turkish fable of the dragon with many heads and the dragon with many tails. The many heads hurt each other, and the many tails obey a single head which wants to devour everything. Democracy seems suitable only to a very little country, and further it must be happily situated, small though it be. It will make many mistakes, because it will be composed of men. Discord will reign there, as in a monastery. But there will be no St. Bartholomew, no Irish massacres, no Sicilian vespers, no Inquisition, no condemnation to the galleys for having taken some water from the sea without paying for it, unless, one supposes this republic, composed of devils in a corner of hell. One questions every day whether a republican government is preferable to a king's government. The dispute ends always by agreeing that to govern men is very difficult. The Jews had God himself for master. See what has happened to them on that account. Nearly always have they been beaten and slaves. And today do you not find that they cut a pretty figure? Friendship Friendship is the marriage of the soul, and this marriage is subject to divorce. It is a tacit contract between two sensitive and virtuous persons. I say sensitive because a monk, a recluse, can be not wicked and live without knowing what friendship is. I say virtuous because the wicked have only accomplices. Voluptuaries have companions in debauch. Self-seekers have partners. Politicians get partisans. The generality of idle men have attachments. Princes have courtiers. Virtuous men alone have friends. Cethegus was the accomplice of Catalina, and Misionus the courtier of Octavius, but Cicero was the friend of Atticus. Limits of the Human Mind Someone asked Newton one day why he walked when he wanted to, and how his arm and his hand moved at his will. He answered manfully that he had no idea. But at least, his interlocutor said to him, you who understand so well the gravitation of the planets will tell me why they turn in one direction rather than in another. And he again confessed that he had no idea. Those who taught that the ocean was salt for fear that it might become putrid, and that the tides were made to bring our ships to port, were somewhat ashamed when the reply was made to them that the Mediterranean has ports and no ebb. Muchenbrek himself fell into this inadvertence, Has anyone ever been able to say precisely how a log is changed on the hearth into burning carbon? And by what mechanism lime is kindled by fresh water? Is the first principle of the movement of the heart in animals properly understood? Does one know clearly how generation is accomplished? Has one guessed what gives us sensations, ideas, memory? We do not understand the essence of matter any more than the children who touch its surface. Who will teach us by what mechanism this grain of wheat that we throw into the ground rises again to produce a pipe laden with an ear of corn, and how the same soil produces an apple at the top of this tree, and a chestnut on its neighbor. Many teachers have said, What do I not know? Montaigne used to say, What do I know? Ruthlessly trenchant fellow, wordy pedagogue, meddlesome theorist, you seek the limits of your mind. They are at the end of your nose. Man general reflection on. It needs twenty years to lead man from the plant state in which he is within his mother's womb and the pure animal state, which is the lot of his early childhood, to the state when the maturity of the reason begins to appear. It has needed thirty centuries to learn a little about his structure. It would need eternity to learn something about his soul. It takes an instant to kill him. Superstition The superstitious man is to the rogue what the slave is to the tyrant. Further, the superstitious man is governed by the fanatic and becomes fanatic. Superstition born in paganism, adopted by Judaism, infested the Christian church from the earliest times. All the fathers of the church, without exception, believed in the power of magic. The church always condemned magic, but she always believed in it. She did not excommunicate sorcerers as madmen who were mistaken, but as men who were really in communication with the devil. Today one half of Europe thinks that the other half has long been and still is superstitious. The Protestants regard the relics, the indulgences, the mortifications, the prayers for the dead, the holy water, and almost all the rites of the Roman Church as a superstitious dementia. Superstition, according to them, consists in taking useless practices for necessary practices. Among the Roman Catholics, there are some more enlightened than their ancestors, who have renounced many of these usages, formerly considered sacred, and they defend themselves against the others who have retained them by saying they are indifferent, and what is merely indifferent cannot be an evil. It is difficult to mark the limits of superstition. A Frenchman traveling in Italy finds almost everything superstitious and is hardly mistaken. The Archbishop of Canterbury maintains that the Archbishop of Paris is superstitious, the Presbyterians make the same reproach against his grace of Canterbury, and are in their turn treated as superstitious by the Quakers, who are the most superstitious of all in the eyes of other Christians. In Christian societies, therefore, no one agrees as to what superstition is. The sect which seems to be the least attacked by this malady of the intelligence is that which has the fewest rights. But if, with few ceremonies, it is still strongly attached to an absurd belief, this absurd belief is equivalent alone to all the superstitious practices observed from the time of Simon the Magician to that of Father Gofridi. It is therefore clear that it is the fundamentals of the religion of one sect which is considered as superstition by another sect. The Muslims accuse all Christian societies of it and are themselves accused. Who will judge this great matter? Will it be reason? But each sect claims to have reason on its side. It will therefore be force which will judge, while awaiting the time when reason will penetrate a sufficient number of heads to disarm force. Up to what point does statecraft permit superstition to be destroyed? This is a very thorny question. It is like asking up to what point one should make an incision in a dropsical person who may die under the operation. It is a matter for the doctor's discretion. Can there exist a people free from all superstitious prejudices, that is to ask, can there exist a nation of philosophers? It is said that there is no superstition in the magistrature of China. It is probable that none will remain in the magistrature of a few towns of Europe. Then the magistrates will stop the superstition of the people from being dangerous. These magistrates' example will not enlighten the mob, but the principal persons of the middle classes will hold the mob in check. There is not perhaps a single riot, a single religious outrage in which the middle classes were not formally imbrued, because these middle classes were then the mob. But reason and time will have changed them. Their softened manners will soften those of the lowest and most savage populace. It is a thing of which we have striking examples in more than one country. In a word, less superstition, less fanaticism, and less fanaticism, less misery. Theist The theist is a man firmly persuaded of the existence of a supreme being as good as he is powerful, who has formed all beings with extension, vegetating, sentient, and reflecting, who perpetuates their species, who punishes crimes without cruelty, and rewards virtuous actions with kindness. The theist does not know how God punishes, how he protects, how he pardons, for he is not reckless enough to flatter himself that he knows how God acts, but he knows that God acts and that he is just. Difficulties against providence do not shake him in his faith, because they are merely great difficulties and not proofs. He submits to this providence, although he perceives but a few effects and a few signs of this providence, and judging of the things he does not see by the things he sees, he considers that this providence reaches all places and all centuries. Reconciled in this principle with the rest of the universe, he does not embrace any of the sects, all of which contradict each other. His religion is the most ancient and the most widespread for the simple worship of a god has preceded all the systems of the world. He speaks a language that all peoples understand while they do not understand one another. He has brothers from Peking to Cayenne, and he counts all wise men as his brethren. He believes that religion does not consist either in the opinions of an unintelligible metaphysic or in vain display, but in worship and justice. The doing of good, there is his service. Being submissive to God, there is his doctrine. The Mohammedan cries to him, Have a care if you do not make the pilgrimage to Mecca. Woe unto you, says Recolet, if you do not make a journey to Notre-Dame de Lorette. He laughs at Lorette and at Mecca, but he succors the needy and defends the oppressed. Tolerance What is tolerance? It is the consequence of humanity. We are all formed of frailty and error. Let us pardon reciprocally each other's folly that is the first law of nature. It is clear that the individual who persecutes a man, his brother, because he is not of the same opinion, is a monster. That admits of no difficulty. But the government, but the magistrates, but the princes, how do they treat those who have another worship than theirs? If they are powerful strangers, it is certain that a prince will make an alliance with them. Francois I, very Christian, will unite with Mussulmans against Charles V. Very Catholic. Francois I will give money to the Lutherans of Germany to support them in their revolt against the emperor, but in accordance with custom, he will start by having Lutherans burned at home. For political reasons, he pays them in Saxony. For political reasons, he burns them in Paris. But what will happen? Persecutions make proselytes? Soon, France will be full of new Protestants. At first, they will let themselves be hanged. Later, they, in their turn, will hang. There will be civil wars, then will come the Saint Bartholomew, and this corner of the world will be worse than all the ancients and moderns have ever told of hell. Madmen who have never been able to give worship to the god who made you, miscreants whom the example of the Noahides, the learned Chinese, the Pisces, and all the sages has never been able to lead, monsters who need superstitions as crows' gizzards need carrion, you have been told it already, and there is nothing else to tell you. If you have two religions in your countries, they will cut each other's throat. If you have thirty religions, they will dwell in peace. Look at the great Turk. He governs Gubre, Banians, Creek Christians, Nestorians, Romans. The first who tried to stir up tumult would be impaled, and everyone is tranquil. Of all religions, the Christian is without doubt the one who should inspire tolerance most, although up to now the Christians have been the most intolerant of all men. The Christian Church was divided in its cradle, and was divided even in the persecutions which under the first emperors it sometimes endured. Often the martyr was regarded as an apostate by his brethren, and the Carpocratian Christian expired beneath the sword of the Roman executioners, excommunicated by the Ebionite Christian, the which Ebionite was anathema to the Sibelian. This horrible discord, which has lasted for so many centuries, is a very striking lesson that we should pardon each other's errors, Discord is the great ill of mankind, and tolerance is the only remedy for it. There is nobody who is not in agreement with this truth, whether he meditates soberly in his study or peaceably examines the truth with his friends. Why, then, do the same men who admit in private indulgence, kindness, justice, rise in public with so much fury against these virtues? Why? It is that their own interest is their God, and that they sacrifice everything to this monster that they worship. I possess a dignity and a power founded on ignorance and credulity. I walk on the heads of the men who lie prostrate at my feet. If they should rise and look me in the face, I am lost. I must bind them to the ground, therefore, with iron chains. Thus have reasoned the men whom centuries of bigotry have made powerful. They have other powerful men beneath them. And these have still others, who all enrich themselves with the spoils of the poor, grow fat on their blood, and laugh at their stupidity. They all detest tolerance, as partisans, grown rich at the public expense, fear to render their accounts, and as tyrants dread the word liberty. And then, to crown everything, they hire fanatics to cry at the top of their voices, Respect my master's absurdities, tremble, pay, and keep your mouths shut. It is thus that a great part of the world long was treated. But today, when so many sects make a balance of power, what course to take with them? Every sect, as one knows, is a ground of error. There are no sects of geometers, algebraists, arithmeticians, because all the propositions of geometry, algebra, and arithmetic are true. In every other science one may be deceived. What Thomist or Scottish theologian would dare to say seriously that he is sure of his case? If it were permitted to reason consistently in religious matters, it is clear that we all ought to become Jews, because Jesus Christ our Saviour was born a Jew, lived a Jew, died a Jew, and that he said expressly that he was fulfilling the Jewish religion. But it is clear still that we ought to be tolerant of one another, because we are all weak, inconsistent, liable to fickleness and error. Shall a reed laid low in the mud by the wind say to a fellow reed fallen in the opposite direction? Crawl as I crawl, wretch, or I shall petition that you be torn up by the roots and burned. Tyranny One gives the name of tyrant to the sovereign who knows no laws but those of his caprice, who takes his subjects' property, and who afterwards enrolls them to go take the property of his neighbors. There are none of these tyrants in Europe. One distinguishes between the tyranny of one man and that of many— The tyranny of many would be that of a body which invaded the rights of other bodies, and which exercised despotism in favour of the laws corrupted by it. Nor are there any tyrants of this sort in Europe. Under which tyranny would you like to live? Under neither. But if I had to choose, I would detest the tyranny of one man less than that of many. A despot always has his good moments. An assembly of despots never. If a tyrant does me an injustice, I can disarm him through his mistress, his confessor, or his page, but a company of grave tyrants is inaccessible to all seductions. When it is not unjust, it is at the least hard, and never does it bestow favours. If I have only one despot, I am quit of him by drawing myself up against a wall when I see him pass, or by bowing low, or by striking the ground with my forehead according to the custom of the country. But if there is a company of a hundred despots, I am exposed to repeating the ceremony a hundred times a day, which in the long run is very annoying if one's hocks are not supple. If I have a farm in the neighborhood of one of our lords, I am crushed. If I plead against a relation of the relations of one of our lords, I am ruined. What is to be done? I fear that in this world one is reduced to being either hammer or anvil. Lucky the man who escapes these alternatives."